Have you ever had a conversation where, about 10 minutes after you've hung up the phone, you realize the exact thing you should have said? Whether it was sage advice, a witty comeback, or something far more gracious than the thing you did say. That happened to me last week when I was talking to my investment advisor. He was telling me about his teenage son, who apparently was trying to make sense of church, something which is not routinely part of their family life. Josh said he explained to his son that no one really believes the myths in the Bible, but that church can be a nice place for people to find social connection. I let it slide at the time, but afterwards I wish I had said, yep, every culture has its myths, including ours. Our 21st century myths run along the lines of more is better. Under capitalism, people get what they deserve. Whoever has the most toys when he dies wins. Myths are important. They help us understand our society and our place in it. I guess I just think that some myths are more helpful than others. Today we are going to look at an encounter between Jesus and a young man who had bought into the more is better myth and will explore the parable that Jesus told him. Here's how Luke records the incident in his biography of Jesus. Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! You will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Let's start to look at this with a bit of context. This episode happens in what we call the second half of Jesus' ministry. In the first half, Jesus is gaining growing popularity. He's working miracles of healing and of provision. He's teaching in synagogues. And while the religious leaders aren't openly endorsing him, there isn't a lot of direct confrontation. This rising mood continues until the transfiguration and Peter's declaration that he is the Messiah. After that, the tone becomes somewhat darker. Jesus tells his followers that he himself would be delivered over to Gentiles and be crucified. He also says that they will face persecution. 
In the passage just before the one we are looking at today, Jesus tells his followers that they will be brought to trial in the synagogues and before rulers and authorities. Given that context, perhaps it's not surprising that the young man who addresses Jesus expressed concerns about his financial situation. It's easy not to fret about money when all is going well, but when storm clouds gather on the horizon, our instinct may be to hunker down and look for some security. And so the man asks Jesus to tell his brother to divide their father's estate with him. I'm going to take a wild guess that he was the younger brother. But the pattern we see in the early Hebrew scriptures of the oldest son getting everything was no longer uniformly observed. Under Roman law, all children, even daughters, could inherit. If the father of the family died without a will, the estate was divided between heirs, and even if he had a will, but it did, did not give an equal share to one of the kids, they could appeal as long as they could show they'd been a dutiful child. So in that sense, the young man's request isn't unreasonable. After all, Jesus does encourage us to trust God for the things we need. Maybe the problem with this young man's request wasn't what he asked for, but that that was all he asked for. His request was solely focused on himself and on what he thought he needed. I don't want to be too hard on the guy. After all, we get such a narrow snippet of his life. But in a sense, he's treating Jesus like a utility, like a sort of ATM that would dispense solutions to his problem. I love Jesus' layered response. On the surface, it can sound like, buzz off, who made me a judge over you? But at another level, he may actually be asking a sincere question. Do you know who made me judge over you? God has appointed Jesus to be the judge of all, to be the sovereign over a new kind of kingdom. And when we come to terms with that, it changes everything. We can no longer continue in our short-sighted, self-serving worldview. Probably the reason I'm picking up on this is because I have prayed a lot of prayers just like the young man's request. A couple of years ago, I started, started praying the Lord's Prayer regularly, and at first I remember thinking, this is dumb. What's in it for me? Lord have mercy. I was treating God as a utility and prayer as the access card. When we treat God as a utility, we see the purpose of prayer as getting God to do what we in our infinite <coughs> wisdom know ought to be done. Jesus challenges the young man's self-serving worldview. The young man thinks that scarcity is what he needs to fear. Jesus says, no, what you actually need to be afraid of is greed. In fact, Jesus specifies that the man needs to be vigilant against all kinds of greed. Jesus goes on and says that our lives can't be measured in the material things. For him, apparently it's not. He who has the most toys when he dies is the winner. It's he who has the most toys when he dies is dead. And he tells a parable to make that point. It's the story of a rich man who had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. 
A couple of things to note off the top. This guy was already rich, and the bumper crop he has just harvested is described in passive terms. It's not that through hard work and innovation he produced a bumper crop. Jesus says the fertile land produced the crop. It was good soil, good luck, good weather. It was grace. But that doesn't prevent the landowner from feeling fully entitled to it. It appears never to cross his mind that he could share with others. And it gets worse. Instead of just adding a wing to one of his existing barns or putting up an extra silo, he tears down presumably perfectly good barns and builds new ones. His wealth has become an end in itself, and he uses it in a way that demonstrates to everyone else how wealthy he is. Uh, His bingo card for the seven deadly sins is actually getting pretty full. Sloth, greed, gluttony, and maybe a dash of arrogant pride. I'm not a fan of the 401 highway, so when I go to visit our daughter and her family in Cambridge, I've found a route that is almost all backcountry roads. It's beautiful, and the well-maintained roads are often empty. But for a stretch north of Toronto, it's impossible to miss all of the McMansions. Good farmland cut into one, two, five-acre lots with huge homes and beautifully manicured lawns and surrounded by imposing fences with locked gates. They are conspicuous symbols of the wealth of the owner, but they are also clear signals that they aren't looking for community. Instead of using their wealth to create the kinds of meaningful connections that our souls crave, they use it to insulate themselves from others. Last week, Aaron spoke about the parable of the sower and how, in seasons when the soil of our heart is hard, the plow must come. He said, healthy communities of friendship are crucial because the plow always comes. This is life. And in those times when we have forgotten how much work life really is, we will be thankful for those who have experienced the plow before us, so they can not only remind us of the potential for harvest, but maybe help us pick out the rocks and pull out the weeds, steer the plow, and if nothing more, open up their barn so we can eat. But the landowner in Jesus' story isn't interested in opening his barn to share. He's locking it up to hoard. Of course he needs to save it. He needs to have enough to live on for years. The only problem is that although he has all the stuff, he doesn't have any time. He dies that night. And the life he dedicated to amassing material goods will not serve him well in the spiritual realm. At this point, you might be thinking, Jan should be preaching this to herself. She's sitting all alone in that big house in the middle of a hundred acres. And you'd be right. And I am preaching to myself, believe me. But at the same time, it's important to remember that greed can come in many forms. We may be generous with our money, but stingy with our time. If we're introverts, as I am, it's likely our emotional energy that we hoard. Greed may not necessarily even be tied to quantity, but it's a matter of focus, of preoccupation, 
C.S. Lewis writes that someone can be a glutton without wanting exotic dishes or large quantities. She may be the kind of guest who doesn't want to put you to any trouble in the kitchen. She only wants a thin piece of toast, toasted just to the right crispness, and spread with butter just the right amount of butter, and tea piping hot and served in a china cup. She would be horrified to think she's seen as a glutton, yet her life is preoccupied with getting food just the way she likes it. Jesus warns our young man to beware, guard against every kind of greed. I've emphasized the opportunity for generosity and sharing that our greedy landowner missed, but I'm not sure that's the main point Jesus was making. I suspect he is less concerned about what the landowner did with his money and more concerned about what the money did to the landowner. The problem wasn't that he had wealth, but the degree to which the wealth had him, preoccupied him. The problem wasn't his wealth, but the fact that he had so single-mindedly focused on it that he was a spiritual pauper. Jesus had affluent friends, and there is no indication he rebuked them for that. Think of Mary of Bethany, who is wealthy enough to own that ridiculously expensive jar of ointment she used to anoint Jesus. We're told it cost about the amount of money a laborer would earn in a whole year. But Mary's preoccupation isn't with her wealth. It's with worshiping Jesus and following him. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it clear that for the greedy landowner, it would not have been enough to simply devote 10% of his wealth to worthy causes, or even 20% or 30%. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The landowner is serving his resources, building barns to house and protect them. He is despising God. He sees himself as a self-made man, deserving of his wealth, invulnerable, and dependent on no one. In the teaching that follows the parable we looked at today, Jesus goes on to tell his followers not to worry about the day-to-day things they need, like food and clothing. And I'm going to close with those words. Jesus said, What I'm trying to do here is get you to relax and not be so preoccupied with getting so that you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over those things, but you know both God and how God works. Steep yourself in God reality, God initiative, God's provisions you'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Don't be afraid of missing out. You're my dearest friends. The Father wants to give you the very kingdom itself.